The Questions Log. Week 5. A month past the Infinite Crisis now, the costumed heroes who battled among the stars with wings and jetpacks have returned home. But it seems like many have paid a heavy toll. Bodies enlarged, entangled, limbs misplaced. Cronenbergian fears made real in an abject manifestation of every Trekkie's worst nightmare. Ellen Baker waits piously for her man to come home. Do some soldiers yet remain stranded across this cosmic battlefield? That's the $100 question. This is 52 Pickup. Hello, Alex Jaffe. Hello, Gita Jackson. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of 52 Pickup. A podcast about the best comic book you have never heard of. How are you? Well, I'm hoping you've heard of it by now. We're five (laughs) episodes into this thing. If you've been with us for the last month, hopefully you've heard of 52 at this point. Just have a vague idea of what it is and what it's about. That's all you're ever going to get. It's a weekly comic book about the state of the DC universe without Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman in the way. And when all the freaks come out at night. They really do be coming out at night. And this episode is really about that freaky stuff, genuinely. I'm very excited to talk about this fifth issue. But first off, how are you? Have you been? Oh, you know me. I've been great. Yeah. What have I been doing lately? Um, I've been trying to put together a list of every single Green Lantern who has ever been named in a comic book. I love that for you (laughs) and also want to see that list. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. You know, good stuff. I'm over there answering questions for the public. Godspeed. People come to me with their DC Comics related questions and I answer them. And this is basically all I think about all day. And I'm happy to be talking to somebody who has something else to say about comics (laughs) other than comics themselves. Yeah, in a shakeup this week, I am the one that has the expertise a little bit in, in terms of talking talent. Oh yeah, this is a re- this is my real Jesus take the wheel moment. Because as we get into let's talk talent, uh what's going on with this issue is that when this was written, uh Jeff Johns was busy doing final touches on Infinite Crisis, which was being finished while 52 was being written. For those just joining us, 52 is basically the sequel to Infinite Crisis. Uh so he was unavailable for this one. Uh Mark Wade was at an overseas convention. So that really just left Greg Rucka and Grant Morrison to work on this one. And other than one scene that Rucka contributes, this entire issue is Morrison, start to finish. You can really, really, really tell reading the comic and just that everyone's voice kind of changes and they kind of talk about stuff that never comes up again, basically. (laughs) But it's my opportunity to talk about one of my favorite comic book writers, Grant Morrison, who... In my notes, I wrote in the first bullet point for Let's Talk Talent, I wrote, Grant Morrison is Scottish, and that's all we know for sure. (laughs) (laughs) He is from some universes, Scotland, at least. Yes. Somewhere there is a Scotland where everyone there is like Grant Morrison. No, Grant Morrison is a prolific and renowned comic book writer, and they have been working in the industry for a very long time. They were part of that wave of comic book writers that came from England who were working at places like Heavy Metal or 2000 AD. In fact, it was Morrison's series Zenith that uh, caught the attention of DC and uh, made them want to bring him, give him a book initially. That was Karen Berger, right? 
Yeah, I think, I believe so. Karen Berger with a Vertigo initiative, right. you know, where Vertigo was an imprint uh, designed to house some of these non-intra-DC universe, like, weirdo books by people like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore. Of course, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore wanted their books to be in continuity. So yeah. <laughs> that wasn't necessarily, the, there, was the, there was a pretty porous divide between those uh, Vertigo and DC. And Morrison, of all of them, over the years, what I have found is that they are the most interested in very specific surrealist movements, especially Dadaism, and the most willing to be 100% completely pretentious about it, but also... An argument could be made for Peter Milligan. Yeah. Peter Milligan, though, Peter Milligan, here it's, it's gowns, beautiful gowns for Peter Milligan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he has the range in the same way that Grant Morrison does. Grant Morrison is a, a kind of person that is deeply knowledgeable about especially really weird and obscure DC heroes, a, a way that might be similar to someone else on this podcast, I would say. <laughs> and Gita, don't refer to yourself in the third person. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's this really interesting way that I've heard um, the mangaka for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure be described, which is essentially every issue of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, you learn about something that the mangaka read like that week, maybe, and that he's really interested in. It's a brand <laughs> new fact to him. And that's how I feel about Grant Morrison and doing drugs for philosophical enlightenment. Truly the Hideo Kojima of comics. <laughs> It's not wrong. You know, it's the same kind of fourth wall boundary pushing uh, style that made Kojima famous, right? Yeah. Grant Morrison is aware of the medium and wants you to become aware of the medium. They were initially inspired in a way that I think is very familiar for people who are a little bit too smart, but also lazy. Um, they have this great quote from Thrill Power Overload by David Bishop from Grant Morrison, where they describe liking both The Dark Knight and uh, Watchmen. But apparently Morrison said, both books felt pompous and concept album-y to me as a young man in the 80s, which... Okay. <laughs> Morrison basically took a look at what Alan Moore was doing and was like, I can do that. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's not easy, actually, as they would discover. No. The first book Morrison got was Animal Man. Animal Man, up until that point... Uh, was created in 1956 by Dave Wood and Car- uh, penciler Carmen Infantino. Carmen Infantino, yes. the He's the man who put the Batman symbol in a yellow oval. A very, very influential Silver Age artist. Yeah, well, they came up with a very good costume for this man, but Animal Man was not necessarily a, po- a popular hero to use. The concept no. of his powers are a little weird. Like, we can be real about that. He has the powers of any animal, but he doesn't turn into the animals. He just, like, has the relative strength of an ant, or he can take the flight from an eagle. But it just means that he has regular superhero powers and then occasionally says animal-related facts. He debuted in Strange Adventures, which was one of DC's many Silver Age anthology comics going on at the time, where you would kind of see one concept pop up and disappear kind of in the same vein of their long-running horror comics, but with more of a sci-fi edge. Uh, But sometimes they would try out a character here that would go on to become a little bit more of a staple. Animal Man was one of their marginally successful ones, but some big hits to come out of Strange Adventures included Dead Man and Adam Strange, who will also be a major part of this issue. I mean, now the pieces are all coming together, right? 
Morrison loves doing this thing where they just sort of pluck a superhero team out of that hasn't no one's thought about since like the 1950s and then wholesale just puts them into a, a modern plot within a very adult sensibility. But not in a way where they stop being silly. They continue to be silly. It just leans fully into everything having always been canon and even the stuff from the Silver Age that you don't think of as serious or grounded being a part of a tangible universe. And that's definitely something that they, they started doing when they were working with Animal Man. Like what was made Animal Man popular at the time was that Buddy Baker, the Animal Man himself, was a family man. Everything James Gunn has done sort of with Peacemaker, making him just a guy that lives in a shitty small town and like being a superhero is a weird sidekick. Animal Man and Buddy Baker, they do it from a more middle-class perspective. Oh, yeah. Animal Man has a wife, and as much as he does superheroing stuff, like fighting villains, he also has to deal with, like, the stress of his job impacting his family life and having to be a present father, even though he's traveling internationally, like, every day. Stuff like that. And then, also, there's an issue where you meet Wile E. Coyote, who is, realizes that he's in a cartoon, and then is crucified. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a statement on comic book continuity and the fact that these characters are not allowed to die or grow and the uh, they always kind of have to start over from where they started with in order for their story to keep going forever. Uh, Superman never gets to truly defeat Lex Luthor, uh, nor can he ever die because there needs to be a new Superman story every month. And it's kind of a statement about how these comic book heroes are stuck in that same limbo as your Looney Tunes. Yeah, it's a really wonderful book. And I think uh, that specific issue can be read out of continuity. I would recommend just reading all of it. It is like it will hit you in the face with the 80s-ness of it all. It definitely feels like a, you know, a late 80s, early 90s project in that a lot of these themes are being uncovered in the mainstream, at least for the very, very first time. Morrison would eventually write themselves into the comic, you know, saying things about the sort of immateriality of these characters, thinking, you know, I'm a vegetarian and I wrote you, Buddy Baker, to be a vegetarian, but I also know that the next person who will take this book might do something edgy and make you eat meat. Yeah. There's a whole sequence near the end of the series where Grant Morrison takes Animal Man to comic book limbo and meets all of the characters who haven't been used by DC in decades, like uh, the Inferior Five or um, uh, Detective Chimp, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I believe Detective Chimp is, is in there. Cave Carson is in there. I think Crypto the Superdog might be in there. Mister Freeze, who wouldn't really become a major DC character again until he was revitalized by Batman the Animated Series in the nineties. But uh, when Animal Man was published, he was pretty obscure. It was this statement about how there are literally thousands of characters DC has created that just kind of get shelved because the stars stay at the forefront and their supporting characters change over time. And the whole thesis of 52 itself is that those characters can really rise up and have their own stories at any moment, given the proper attention. It's an idea that Morrison has been dedicated to since the very beginning of their career at DC, and it's pretty cool to see that coming to a head with 52 literally like over 15 years later. It's so true. And then like the stuff they've done after 52, including Final Crisis and Multiversity, mm -hmm. returns to these themes over and over and over. They are so much, they are as much an artisan as they are a historian in a lot of ways, where their goal is to get you to appreciate the many, many decades of history that DC Comics itself tries to bury.
Yeah. <laughs> Just all in the name of keeping it cohesive, because the problem I get over and over again anytime someone wants to start reading DC is, where do I start? And I don't know how to tell them that, like, that's the wrong question to ask. Yeah. You can really start anywhere, and being confused is part of it. Everyone's reading journey through this universe is going to be different. And what we're doing right here is as great place to start as any, which is smack dab in the middle of all of these storylines, which have been secretly running in the background for decades. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. They also remind me a little bit of um, Miyazaki, the game, one of the game directors at From Software. This might be apocryphal, but long ago I read an interview where I believe he said that he wanted the experience for all players to be like playing a game that was in English. He's a Japanese man. It's in English and you you don't have a, a, the correct language uh, like strategy guide and it's like translated poorly. So you only understand like half of the things that are trying to be communicated to you. And Morrison does kind of the same thing yeah. where a lot of the time it all is coherent if you really want to go back and diagram everything, but you're better if you don't do that. It's more, they want you to get hit by the emotional impact of the storytelling, which does not always run on logic. Yeah, I would say reading Final Crisis is exactly like playing Dark Souls. It's the Dark Souls of comic books. Absolutely. It is. It is actually. That's true. <laughs> At least the Dark Souls 2 of comic books. <laughs> so one that people hate a lot, but it's actually probably better than they think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you get me. Yeah. So if that is all to say that everything that Morrison is doing in 52, they have been thinking about since they started writing comic books. Right. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure the Space Heroes storyline, which is really in full force, like fully introduced here. It's not as good as Animal Man. Very few things are. It's not as good as Doom Patrol. Very few things are. But this is a pretty good issue. I think it's yeah. pretty fun. The entire thesis of the space heroes story that we're going to get into with this issue that Morrison at least attempts to explore, but I don't think quite succeeds at is every time we go into space, it's about dark side. This Jack Kirby casts such an enormous shadow over the cosmic end of the DC universe that every time you go into space, it's either about cops with the Green Lantern Corps or it's about gods with Darkseid and High Father and the whole grand conflict between Apocalypse and New Genesis. What else is in space? And that's where Morrison starts from. Yeah. Just uh, are we going to dive into the issue or do you have any more notes about Grant Morrison? I know I'm the big Grant Morrison fan here. So. Not Morrison specifically. I do want to talk a little bit more talent. Let's get into the art because there's a little bit of a shakeup in this issue. Uh, this is our first issue without Joe Bennett on art. Uh, Joe Bennett was doing the pencils for the first four issues. Here we have Chris Batista. Uh, Batista was a student of Klaus Janssen, who's best known for inking Frank Miller on Daredevil and The Dark Knight Returns. Prior to 52, he worked on the first issues of Steel's solo series. So this is his return to Steel in this issue. Uh, he also worked with Jeff Johns before on Identity Crisis and Infinite Crisis. And he'd go on to work on Booster Gold with both Johns and Dan Jerkins. And uh, on The Last Days of Animal Man with Jerry Conway, which is a very interesting series in its own right. Uh, kind of a non-canonical 
uh, Lamort de Arthur for the character of Animal Man. There's a blue whale who becomes a Green Lantern. It's pretty cool. That racks. <laughs> yeah. Um, inks by Jimmy Palmiotti, the president of comic books. Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti did a lot of inking back in the day, but he's better known now as a writer who you worked on Jonah Hex with Justin Gray and for many years on Harley Quinn with Amanda Connor during the New 52. He's a very jovial guy who stands up for the rights of comic book writers and uh, is generally a cool, positive influence on the whole comic book creator scene. A very pleasant man, if you get to know him. he, he I met him once. He paid me the nicest compliment I've ever heard. A mutual friend introduced us, and uh, she described what I do. And he said, oh, so you're the new Mark Wade." And I was like, oh, wow. no, 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 no. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not even close. But yeah. it remains the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me, mistaken or not. So I always have a lot of love for Jimmy. Uh, we have our fifth letterer in five weeks, Phil Ballsman. He was very busy at the time, basically lettering every comic DC was doing in April 2006 when this came out. Yeah, this is basically everything they had in their lineup. Jesus. Yeah. Blue Beetle, Swamp Thing, The Outsiders, Supergirl, and the Legion of Superheroes, a book I read, which I have mixed feelings on. Uh, Guy Gardner, Captain Adam Ar Armageddon, a book I completely forgot about. That was the book that bridged continuity between Wildstorm and DC Comics after DC acquired them in 1999. And then they do that again, and then a couple more times. Yeah, Jim Lee really wants them to work. He really wants you to care about death blood. Death blow. Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You can't make me care. The only two characters people want to know about are Midnighter and the other one. Apollo. Apollo and Midnighter. I'm sorry for calling him the other one, but he truly is the other one. Grifter's got some shooters out there. Some people care about Grifter. That's true. Grifter does have shooters. That's right. Don't come for me, Grifter fans. <laughs> <laughs> it was lettering four different Batman comics at the time. This was just their cleanup hitter, Phil Balsman. And DC was clearly having a lot of trouble finding a letterer who could do 52 every week. We'll see where they eventually landed. But that's our creative team, which takes us to the cover. Yes. Let's talk about J.G. Jones's cover. Hot girl big. Hot girl big. <laughs> Hot girl big. That's the I hope this cover, doesn't basically. awaken anything in me. <laughs> I know people just are getting giantess fetishes after this issue. It's just so in the previous issue, it was revealed that the heroes coming back from space. Some of them are all fucked up. Basically, look at them. They don't got all fucked up. Basically, Morrison doing Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah. Um, and what happened to Hawkgirl? Hawkgirl got real big. Yeah. That's her problem. And it's a, a bunch of doctors rushing somebody to a a hospital, but also there is a crashed hot girl lying on top of some ambulances. It's a good cover, but it's also like hot girl big. Like that's kind of all there is to say. Not with many little hidden details here. I will say she is wearing high heels, which is an embellishment by J.G. Jones. She doesn't wear that in any of the interior art. And these are spindly little high heels yeah. that look very unsupportive. Her arches must be crying. Although she does have an nth metal harness, which I imagine takes a lot of weight off her feet. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> high heels are uncomfortable shoes. But yeah, let's just dive right into it, right? This is week five. Yeah. They've been at this for a month and one week. <laughs> uh, we open on Ellen Baker. Ellen Baker, the wife of Animal Man. The, that family superhero that Gita was just talking about. 
uh, is taking down the welcome home banner that she's had up for a month now uh, because Animal Man was one of the many heroes dispatched to space to deal with the cosmic end of Infinite Crisis in a big shakeup between the planets Ran and Thanagar. And many of those heroes have come home, but Animal Man was not among them. Uh, Ellen's having an uncomfortable conversation with her daughter where they're about to give up on the idea that uh, daddy's coming home from the war. Uh, that's when Alan Scott shows up to confirm that although many of those heroes have come back, Animal Man wasn't one of them. And Ellen starts putting the banner back up. Yeah. Because Ellen knows that in the world of superheroes, no body always means no death. It's a really cute little scene. It's one yeah. of my, I, I love this aspect of Buddy Baker, that his family are not just props that occur off screen. They are fully formed human beings. And one of those things is that Eileen, as a non-superhero person, no interest in being a hero, just kind of wants to live her life in the suburbs and raise her kids. But she knows, having watched from the sidelines, how these things tend to go, right? Oh, like yeah. I've been in relationships where, uh, I've definitely had to listen to the same story about a person's job. And then, you know, the millionth time they came home and like, my boss was so annoying. I, you could be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very Blink-182, work sucks, I know. It's particularly appropriate for Ellen considering how metafictional the original Animal Man series has been. She has – her family has seen behind the curtain. They know yeah. how this hero stuff works. They've really been through it. They've been written by Grant Morrison. Yes. So, uh, I like the, the banter also. Ellen has a very good voice, a very strong voice. Morrison's work is pretty voicey. They try to make sure each character has a distinct speaking style often. Sometimes it defaults into just sort of like phlebotinum, just bullshit, like gobbledygook. But I think for their like grounded suburban characters, they all feel very real. Yeah. Uh, this scene reminds me of my personal favorite Grant Morrison scene in the comic. Uh, there was an issue of Final Crisis called Final Crisis Requiem, where Martian Manhunter had just been killed by Libra of the Secret Society of Supervillains, and the entire superhero community comes together to hold a funeral for him. And uh, at the end of Superman's eulogy, uh, he tells everyone that uh, they should come together to pray for a swift resurrection. Because it's not a question of if Martian Manhunter is going to come back, but when. And I love that. they're sorry to see their friend is gone, but they've been through this before and they know he's eventually coming back. Yeah, I like the it's, you know, the impermanence of death, but not through like people not feeling grief, because of course you would feel grief, right? That's the humanist element of Morrison wanting to take these emotions seriously. But also that means these characters have been through this. Mm -hmm. They know that Martian Manhunter will come back. What Ellen says here specifically is, yeah, that sounds like Buddy. Missing, huh? So there's still hope. <laughs> Which is That's just what, true. <laughs> it's great. This is when we get our title drop, stars in their courses, uh, Bible reference. This is our first Bible verse of all of the title drops we've gotten so far. Morrison, they love the classics. Yeah. To overcome the spider's curse, simply quote a Bible verse. <laughs> <laughs> The next page is a pretty good sort of. Uh, I, I want to talk about this Bible verse. Oh, you got stuff to say about the Bible. I'm I got sorry. stuff to say about the Bible. I want to talk about what stars in their courses mean and why it's appropriate to this issue. Dang it. Okay, sure. It's not just about star the fact that stars is in there. 
Uh, it's from specifically the book of Judges 520. Uh, from heaven, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Classically, this illusion, which has been used in poetry for centuries, uh, refers to the cosmic forces and undetectable powers that be that uh, guide our fates and drive us to victory. It's about the powers we can't see but dictate our lives and uh, the fates that we are beholden to, which is indicative of what's going on a lot in this issue of people just kind of having to play the hands they've been dealt. It also folds into the whole Morrison thing of these characters are playthings that we in this world play with, and they can become aware of how they are beholden to their fates no matter what they do, because they are fictional. Oh, that reminds me. In that Grant Morrison Animal Man series, Ellen herself was killed. Grant Morrison killed off Animal Man's entire family. Yeah. And on the last issue, uh, Morrison literally peeked from behind the metafictional curtain and said, no, nah, I'll have pity on you. I'll bring them all back. Yeah, like it's a, a, an act of overwhelming charity and empathy to yeah. think, as an author, do I even have the right to take this from a character? Yeah. Uh, that is such an interesting... The end of that comic, I would highly recommend reading the whole thing all the way through if you haven't done so. The end of that comic really touched me especially because the way that Morrison writes themselves into it, it, it is self-indulgent, but they are not doing it for just the self-indulgence alone. They have like a reason to try to, they want to talk about the power of fiction and the power of telling stories and the power of even believing in those stories for a little bit. Right. And it's beautiful. So we get a little bit of steel here where uh, while Renee is still recovering from her injuries from the big fight in the last week's issue, there's some reports on the news that Lex Luthor has synthesized the metagene, which um, – hold on. Let me look up something. When was the Human Genome Project completed? I'm not sure. Uh, 2003. So it was still a very recent news story when this happened. So this feels like something that – Morrison and the rest of the 52 team kind of had in mind when they were bringing this particular storyline to four, that there was this idea that we had, quote unquote, solved how humans are built because we had mapped the entire human genome. So here, three years later, we have this idea of Lex Luthor figuring out how the metagene works, which in DC Comics is the gene some people are born with, which gives them superpowers once they are exposed to a particular trauma that would kill most other people. That's so funny. I yeah. read about the the invention of the Medellin in DC Comics. It came after another one of the big crises, I believe. Was it was that invasion exclamation point? It was point? invasion, correct. Oh my god, I can't believe I remember that. I don't know calculus, but I know that. <laughs> 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 yeah, I believe um, that was Keith Giffen. Yeah, Invasion! Exclamation point. Also, Animal Man takes part in that, and mm -hmm. it was one of the first major retcons that Animal Man like is aware of happening as it occurs, of specifically his origin story, to make it more in line with the metagene stuff that was going to be happening. Right. And uh, it's an interesting issue. That is also one of the first issues that made me go, comics are an incredible medium, and I'm going to become obsessed with them for the rest of my life. So. <laughs> That was a fun one. There's a very telling scene where Dr. Irons is paged to help with all these uh, fucked up heroes who have come into the hospital. Yeah. And he responds by saying, this is steel. Like he's clocking in not as himself, but as his superhero persona. Yes. And then right underneath it, you see a splash of big hawk girls. It's very funny. <laughs> hawk girl big. 
Hasbro big. She's on the back of a truck. She's big. So where Steel is going is St. Camillus Hospital. And I wanted- This is to, a new place. I wanted to ask you, this is a new place they invented for 52? Yes, they invented a place for 52. They wanted a hospital for superheroes. Uh, St. Camillus, I tried looking it up. It's nobody special, just like a saint for sick people. Mm-hmm. Because DC already has an established doctor for superheroes. That's Dr. Midnight, who does appear in this issue, or at least one of them, Peter Cross. There have been a few doctors, Midnight. Dr. Midnight was a member of the Golden Age Justice Society of America, where his deal was he was blind, but he could fight crime anyway, which is a thing that uh, Marvel would steal decades later. Ooh, I wonder where that would go. Yeah. Uh, he had an owl named Hootie, uh, which was... <laughs> and the blowfish? <laughs> the, the blowfish wouldn't come for a while. I with you. That's, that's what the owl says? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, I believe Dr. Midnight's Owl has won a couple Grammys. So whenever they need someone to check on a superhero illness, like they get some kind of megavirus, Dr. Midnight is usually the guy who shows up. So this is just a location that Dr. Midnight can hang out in to help superheroes en masse who need triage and all that. It's also like the home of one of Morrison's favorite little uh, techniques that they love doing in a comic, which is like, look at all these fucked up things. Yeah. <laughs> look at this horrible body horror that's occurring. Look at it. Just throwing a ton of shit at you at once. Yeah. It's a very wordy couple of pages. We see a couple cameos in the background during the scene of all of the anguished superheroes like Cyborg and Firestorm who've been fused into one body. Um, we see that pieces of red tornado have been stuck in Mal Duncan, who was one of the first black superheroes, who, an early member of the Teen Titans. Um, we also see in the background Ali Kazoom from Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers visiting an unidentified individual with long black hair who is probably supposed to be Shining Knight. Yeah, Shining Knight. I think had blonde hair. I'm not sure. But I can't think of any other character that could be. Zatanna, right. maybe. But Zatanna's doing other stuff. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm just happy that they're here. Seven Soldiers of Victory is one of my personal favorite comic books ever. So anytime someone acknowledges it, it's like that meme of the anime girl. It's like, Seven Soldiers acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was thinking of the uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the camera. Meme. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I like these couple of pages, especially because of the way that these superheroes talking to each other is written. It's obviously a lot of exposition going on, but they're, they're written in such a way where you know, the reader knows that all of these people already know what the stakes are. My favorite it, back and forth between Dr. Midnight and Steel is this page where uh, he asks where what happened to Hawkgirl, and mm-hmm. then Dr. Midnight says she was part of a team I led into space. There was an accident, and Steel responds already knowing what how horrible this could be. Yeah, a teleportation accident. Oh my god! Where it's <laughs> like you really understand as a reader like how messed up the results of a teleportation accident can be based on their reactions. It's really good, clear, clean writing and characterization. Yeah, you get this rare moment of, like, these heroes who have been through this crazy event kind of getting to live in their trauma for a little bit. Like, getting to take a breath and go, wow, what we just went through was really fucked up. 
And there's a sense that even though the crisis is over, like there's always some kind of crisis if you are doing a profession that is this dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something, again, that Morrison definitely tried to like really busted their chops with, you know, working on Animal Man. The sense that being a superhero is not just something you do when the suit is on. It's a profession. And your jobs are things you take home to your family, whether you not like them or not. There was a great scene in a recent issue of Titans where someone is asking the Titans, like, how are you able to just banter with each other in the middle of, like, this enormous fight? And Cyborg is like, there's always an enormous fight. This is the only time we can talk to each other. (laughs) So true. If you ever worked on, like, a professional creative project, you understand that very clearly. (laughs) Oh, yes. This is the only time I talk to Gita. (laughs) Sometimes we have dinner together and occasionally we see a movie. Sometimes we have dinner together. That's true. Yes. But, um, uh, you know, it is the way that I talk to my friends these days is by starting podcasts with them. Right. We're battle friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So once we got the exposition through with uh, Dr. Midnight and Alan Scott. He mentioned Supergirl went somewhere, which sets up her appearance in the Legion of Superheroes title, which is happening at the same time. Yeah. The next page, though, is you get a really Morrison-esque two-page spread where they try to use the way that panels are laid out to further emphasize this disorienting nature of the uh, uh, the the teleportation accident that occurred. And specifically, there's a lot of stuff here that straight up we'll never hear about again. Uh, but it is really good flavor. It sets again sets the stakes really well. You know, this is something I think about a lot when I think about why superhero media that is not comic books doesn't always hit the same. Mm-hmm. And part of it is the story needs. To, it's not just in the events that occur. It is how these events are portrayed. Yes. Here, there's some dialogue. Let's see. Uh, I watched stars revert to the raw metals they were made of. I saw uh, kuns evolve millions of years into beings of pure mental energy. There's no reason to have all that detail, but you will think about that when you're trying to fall asleep at night. (laughs) It makes you feel more than what is on the page. It's more than just the sum of its parts because... It's trying to inspire some some sense of wonder within you. I've seen attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Right? (laughs) All these moments lost, like tears in the rain. No, there's no, almost no comic book movie that I can think of that has made me think about something a character said, like months and months, months after the fact. Yeah. But this comic book, the way that it explains the terror of experiencing being torn apart and put back together again hundreds of times in a moment that feels like eternity, that's writing. And that's why you need writers. (laughs) That's stuff you'll only find in either a Grant Morrison comic or Tales Gets Trolled. (laughs) Um, Moving on from there, though, we get our little 52 moment. Oh, yes. Which is super fun. Something I also thought about for many, many weeks after this issue and then forgot about it at this around the same amount of time that the writers forgot about this idea of 52 being some kind of magic number. Right. Uh, there's a piece of red tornado that is uh, lodged in Mal Duncan's chest 
that just keeps repeating the number 52 over and over as if it has some kind of significance. Basically the lottery number sequence from Lost, but reduced to a single number. There is a strong Lost influence in this episode specifically, and not this episode, Jesus. In this comic book you issue. You can call it an episode. This is a TV show. This feels so TV. I know Morrison has talked a lot about really liking the two by three layout, which is nine panels uh, across all of the images. because. Uh, six Six panels. What's math? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I did know that Grant Morrison had Animal Man crossover in Invasion. But uh, they've talked about specifically liking that panel layout because it really feels like TV. And you you get that. Like, I, I sort of understand what they're talking about here. These are really big images. You can only really deal in big capital letter ideas. And things can get very dramatic. There's enough time to show reaction shots and stuff like this. But it it feels very intimate still. And it it looks like then at the time, more televisions were four by three than in the the wider aspect ratio that is now more commonly a television size. Absolutely. Which is why in modern comics, you see those wider panels a lot more often because that's changed the way that we view media. And that's gone back to reflect how we read comics as well. It's a, a really fascinating change. In fact, I recently read... Um, Goodbye Airy, which is by the mangaka Fujimoto who draws Chainsaw Man. And that comic is drawn specifically in a those only those wider panels, except for a few splash pages, because they look like a cell phone screen. Right. Which is like a, a really fascinating way how the way we look at visual images has changed the artistry of comics themselves and also made it easier to communicate certain kinds of things that, you know, certain kinds of common modern experiences. This looks like TV in 52 here because also because it's in a hospital. It feels like General Hospital a little bit. It feels like Grey's Anatomy a little bit. Right. The most popular way to read comics in 2023 is on services like Webtoon, where mm-hmm. you're reading one panel at a time on a scrolling app on your phone. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you get these vertical panels that are designed to be read on a phone uh, a lot more often because you're supposed to be able to read it just by looking at this device you always have in your pocket as opposed to carrying a comic book around. And a comic like 52 would look completely different if it were coming out on that weekly schedule, which... Oh, absolutely. We have weekly comics coming out in that format. We have Batman Wayne Family Adventures. There's a new issue of that every week. It's not as ambitious as 52, but it's still operating on that schedule. And it's one that doesn't really take the layout format that Keith Giffen kind of slaved over every week into consideration because it's an entirely different ballgame. Yeah, you know, it's TV is... Fast, And that's one of the things that's changed about TV since 52 has been on the air. You know, if you look at the number of episodes in every season of Lost, it's so many. That's just not something that happens on primetime television as frequently. And if it does, it's for primetime soaps, you know, stuff that's meant to be more disposable. Mm -hmm. Um, TV is fast. TV is really intimate. You invite these characters into your home every week. And here you can see how specifically Grant Morrison is really inspired by the storytelling of television because some you know there's these little moments of of talking but something's happening in every single scene something really dramatic will happen and it will have these very soap opera esque like very the next page you flip to a, a commercial esque sort of pauses now it's very interesting that you bring up the panel layout because in this next scene 
we go back to the nine panel grid, which has been implemented throughout the question stories for the one scene that Greg Rucka contributes to this comic before we get back to Morrison. It is two pages. So we're away from soap opera TV, which is notably taking place at a hospital, which is where the most famous soap opera takes yeah. place. Yeah, for one second, and but we're going to another form of pulp storytelling, yes. which is the detective drama. Right. And we have a little bit of a reunion here of the gals from Gotham Central. This meant a lot to me when I first read it. Yeah. God, I so Gotham Central, great book, as we we've said repeatedly. Greg Rucka wrote half of it. He wrote the night issues, the night shift issues. And this is a reunion of uh basically Renee Montoya and her boss. Yeah. The only two lesbians in the DC universe. <laughs> That's not literally true, but it's figuratively true. It sometimes feels very true. Yeah. Um, it is a nice scene, but it really is Greg Rucka being like, I need to make sure this is in the issue this week. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've got Renee's old boss checking on her because, you know, last time she saw Renee, she had quit the cops and she's kind of been spending her time cavorting with strange women and drinking strange liquors. And she's like, hey, 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 girl, you, you good? And what's she going to say? No? Exactly. Renee is having a bad time, but reveling in it. It's a very right. fun sort of mood for her to be in. But also, you know, the big real reveal here is that she's got a secret. She kept the, the fucking ray gun from yeah. the previous issue. Because clearly, definitively divorced herself from being a police officer mm-hmm. is also the the real reveal here in terms of character, like why these two characters would talk to each other. She doesn't want to be back on the force. She wants to do this weird mystery with the guy with no face. Yeah, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, a lot of people at the time when I checked the message boards around this were like, hey, why does Renee Montoya's gun look different than it did in the last issue? Well, because there's a different artist. That's, yeah. That's it. They're drawing these things fast. Yeah. They got a week. <laughs> um, but that spread interrupted the reveal of the, the sort of uh, the speaker that keeps saying 52. Mm-hmm. And they are flabbergasted, Alan Scott, Steele, and Dr. Midnight, and they will never know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> What's he talking about? <laughs> That's a secret only for Booster. <laughs> What's coming? Well, What's on the way? What's on the way? Yeah, it's, again, panel layouts used to great effect here. Lots of uh, things being slanted, things overlapping on top of each other. Some panels just being arbitrarily a little bit longer or shorter than the others. Uh, it looks good. It's a good couple of pages. It's a very well-told scene that is meaningless. <laughs> Now, what's interesting about this is that this issue, all written by basically one person, uh, does a lot of breakaway from the format we've seen up to this point of like each significant event happening on a different day. Uh, yeah. Because most of the issue is framed at that one hospital emergency that took place right after the last issue, it all kind of by necessity is condensed into one day. And uh, for this transition to work from the beginning of the week to the last scene in the issue, uh, it would be kind of awkward to put that Renee Montoya scene right in the middle. So they had, so Giffen had that day, that scene set on day one as well. But the result of that is we skip right from day one to day seven. Absolutely nothing happened on the six days in between. Yeah. Sunday, busy as hell. <laughs> then a week, everybody gets a week off. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it does make me laugh a lot because we skip straight to week to, to week five, day seven. 
Straight to Saturday. Straight to Saturday. It's a beautiful Saturday in paradise, essentially. We open up on some panels of Starfire and Buddy Baker Animal Man bathing in a pool. Starfire is just butt booty ass naked the entire time for reasons that should be clear. You know, and she's loving it. She loves it. No nudity taboo. That's that she doesn't have that. Well, men liking seeing naked women has nothing to do with it. <laughs> now, I do want to talk about this scene. Please because do. Because the the nudity as it is framed in this scene makes me feel less gross than the fully clothed scenes with Renee Montoya in the previous issue. You are actually so right. <laughs> like yeah. it's a beautiful illustration of a nude woman. Something that like so much art has been based on that principle that women women pretty, pretty girl naked. Right. Um the nudity here is not meant to be like it's not meant to make you horny. Yeah. It's meant to evoke the idea of an Eden-like innocence. Yes, exactly. Especially because Starfire, the one that was popularized for most non-comic book readers, the one from Teen Titans, the cartoon, mm-hmm. is typified by having a childlike sense of wonder, being trusting, open, sweet, and kind. And here, she's just naked because she feels no sense of vulnerability, essentially. She, Buddy Baker has his leather jacket on and his boxer, his, uh, actually his tidy whities and uh, he's looking at a picture of his family. He has some fear. He's closed off. She is just open. And that is like, sure, beautiful lady look pretty, pretty woman good. But also there's a storytelling purpose here and it's not salacious, right? It's that she's given up, that she is fine moving on to the next phase of her life. She has absolutely no problem being out in space as long as she can be free because Starfire has this history of being enslaved by the Scions and the Gordanians. And Mm -hmm. all she's ever really wanted was to be able to express herself and do her own thing. And uh, being with the Titans was one way of doing that. And this is another. So for her, this is a lateral move, if anything. Yeah, basically. And like, she's also, the illustrations here, I really want to give a shout out to the artist again for just like, it does look like a beautiful alien paradise that's got all these weird- Chris Batista. Chris Batista, you fucking nailed it. Like, it's got beautiful, clear, blue, crystalline waters. And then as you see a, a wide shot of the planet, there's these incredible, you know, red mesa mountain tops and then lush foliage a lot of purples blues and greens it looks like like i'm on starfire side basically it looks like like jamaica to take us back to the 2006 message boards a lot of people were complaining at the time that this art was a downgrade from what we saw in the previous four issues. Lies. But I think these Batistas, uh, these Batista comics have done a lot better to stand the test of time. Those. I absolutely agree. Those first four issues look like 2006 ass comics, but they this do. comic could have come out this year. This looks like it's, it cares a lot about using the characters and the environment to communicate the story. Yeah. And by contrast, the previous issues, they have a lot of dynamism, but they are definitely falling into tropes of artistic work, of comic art of the time that feels a lot more dated. It's hard for me to describe. It's trying to look like Jim Lee, basically. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, <laughs> there's, You can see it also in the colors of the previous issue a little bit. You can see more of the artifacts and the digital coloring, whereas here, all the color work is a lot more subtle and also a lot more vibrant. It is very brightly colored. Starfire's skin is a beautiful luminescent like sapphire orange. 
Um, but it's perfect because it looks like the sunshine is raining out from within her. It does where it give. It is giving on vacation. It is giving island paradise. Uh, I do want to point out one more thing before we move on from Naked Starfire. Uh, that I love that half of these shots, when they're not about like evoking Eve in Eden, are basically her Austin Powersing around, barely covering. Uh, I know it's so funny where he's in the tent. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's such a comic book staple, and I love it every time. Yeah. Just conveniently walking in front of different objects to cover your jaw. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and it works also because Starfire, of course, has that super, super long hair. Yeah. So she can just be the Lady of Godiva walking around with her hair in front of her boobs and butt conveniently. Uh, she also explicitly in this in these panels, she eats a piece of fruit from the tree right. while uh, uh, Animal Man, Buddy Baker, is way more suspicious. I like this one line. Have you noticed the sun's been setting for about two weeks now? I'm not used to that. She's just like, it's sick. Why are you mad? (laughs) Yeah, this rules. So they're stuck here with Adam Strange, who's working on his uh, spaceship, but at a significant handicap because he don't got no eyes in his head. His eyes are gone. His eyes were gone. They're putting someone else's head and now we don't have any eyes. He don't got no eyes. And there's something else creepy staring at them in the forest, and that's where we leave them. I have to say, the one thing about the eyes in the forest panel that leaves everything, that's the final thing right before the the next in 52 little preview, uh, that is 100% Lost. That comes from Lost. That is just something that happens in Lost. That's just whole ass smoke monster. That's the smoke monster. Like, it just is. And this issue, you can see, like, where does the Lost influence come from? It comes from Gay Morrison. Yeah. He's close. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Morrison's watching Lost. They're a big Lost head. They <laughs> did a Not Penny's Boat cosplay at some point, I'm That's sure. That's so funny. Uh, it is lovely because it feels like such a product of its time. This is bringing me back, right? This is bringing me back to the Rock Against Bush compilation CDs of Best Buy era, right? <laughs> it's like I, I felt such an intense sense of memory of being at the mall when I saw that panel. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's very, very good. Yeah. What an issue. It's a good issue. It is like in the scheme of things, it will feel consequential, inconsequential because not a lot of huge plot revelations happen here. But it's so good in terms of like this being an episode of television where you get to know everybody. It's a space where everybody takes a breath. Yeah. Ragged or smooth. Some are still recovering from the great trauma of the Ranthanagar War, others are adjusting to new circumstances. It's You know, I want to tell you something, a secret that I've kept to myself this the whole time. I don't know anything about the Ranthanagar War. And oh, it is a phrase baby. Well, that just ricochets across my head sometimes. <laughs> you better wait till we get to the blackboard, because that's what I got up on there this Oh week. my god. There's a war, there's a war, there's Rand and there's Thanagar. That's all I really got to say about yeah, that. I will I will talk about that, but First, I think we need to talk about the backup. Yes, we certainly do. We are learning more and more and more about the DC universe. This week, we learned a little bit about The Flash. Uh, A little bit. You see, the weird way this history has been formatted so far is that the first week, we learned a lot about the in-fiction prehistory of the DC universe, all the guys who existed before the modern era. In the second issue, we talked a little bit about the Golden Age and the Silver Age, just condensing 50 years of comics into one issue. 
And now we have spent two whole issues on Crisis on Infinite Earth. This one-year event has gotten as much attention as the 50 years of comics which have come before it, which is kind of an interesting choice to me. Yeah, I know. I think about this all the time. Like, when did this become something that the entire DC universe has kind of revolved around? It It is essentially right a back door that was written to the comic in case they wanted to be, bring Barry Allen back. Right. And eventually people did. But then also they were like, and then this was also the most important thing to ever happen to anyone ever. And that's not even true about Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think the reason they spend so much time on Crisis on Infinite Earths here is because they need to set that up to talk about Infinite Crisis, which is how you'll understand how we got to where we are in 52. Uh, what these 10 issues are essentially trying to do is catch up the reader who is just coming into this comic from, say, Justice League Unlimited, like a fella like me did, to say, hey, here's what you missed so far. God, every time I think about Christ on Infinite Earth, though, I just think about how beautiful all those pages are. I just, every single ah, page George of that comic Perez, is yeah. delight. George Perez, goaded, absolutely goaded. <laughs> no one could ever do it like him. With the sauce. <laughs> He's not a freaky light boy goaded on the sauce, <laughs> but he is still goaded on the sauce. Yeah. It, it is also interesting reading these backups, seeing them recreate that art, and like, just feeling like, you can't do it. <laughs> you don't have the range. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Dan Jurgens, I love him, but he's not George Perez. Let's talk about the talent. Jurgens manages the scripts and the layouts this issue, but the bulk of the art went to Norm Ratmond. Uh, Norm was an anchor for Image Comics during the 90s boom, uh, worked on with Alan Moore a few times. Uh, he previously worked with Dan Jurgens and Jeff Johns on their Teen Titans runs. And after 52, he'd go on to work on Booster Gold with Jeff and Jurgens. This is where last week's letterer Rob Lee went, uh, replacing Nick Jane Napolitano as letterer here. Uh, we get that Pieta pose that we were talking about mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And it's beautiful. But again, like the moment where it happens in the comics, Perez really just nailed it. I also have to say, what happened after Perez? Why did all the characters that had beautiful curly hair suddenly have straight hair? Just, did they all just forget how to draw curly hair? I think that's it. I, <laughs> Wonder Woman has great curly hair in George Perez's Wonder Woman run, but then, like, that's the last we see of it. It's, like, a beautiful and voluminous. It looks so moisturized. I love it. And then Starfire also... Starfire had this incredible bouffant that oh, you just don't see anymore. I don't get it. Like, curly hair is fun to draw as a person yeah. who draws anime characters in my notebooks, I will say. Why would you not give your character a big puffy cloud of hair if you had the opportunity? I think also at this time, Supergirl had a costume that was designed to tie into the Supergirl movie. So That's she right. had poofy 80s hair, which I right. think looks so great. And she's never had hair with that much volume ever again. Well, through the 70s and the 80s, Supergirl was basically changing her look every single issue. Sometimes she would adopt looks that fans would write, would sketch in and submit to DC Comics. And they'd be like, oh, hey, that will use your Supergirl design for an issue. Obviously, for legal reasons, they couldn't keep doing that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Supergirl went through a lot of costume changes in the pre-crisis era there. Uh, some better than others. Uh, but uh, yeah, we haven't seen her with a poofy hair in a very long time. Bring it back. Listen, we need more volume in our hair. What kind of shampoo and conditioner are these women using? Give right. me the beauty routine. <laughs> like you get Bumblebee with the two puffs on her head and that's basically That's it. it. Come on. 
I think it also reminds me of something that I have a pet peeve of, which I might go on the blackboard in a future issue, like maybe like next issue, which is there was a long time and it was it, during this period of time where if a woman needed to be wearing a formal outfit in a comic book, she would be wearing a mini dress with one shoulder. And that's oh, the yes. only thing they it's drew. The <laughs> I was like, you'd see a lineup of like four women in the same dress. And I'm like, come on. Pick up a fashion magazine. Oh my god! It was an endemic. just that one bare shoulder is the sexiest thing they can imagine. <laughs> They've never seen another dress before in their lives. That's that's the only dress I need to know about. That one dress. So we have Barry Allen sacrificing his life, which is interesting to me because everyone gets to remember Barry Allen sacrificing himself, but yeah. nobody gets to remember Supergirl sacrificing herself. Interesting. We got a word for that, actually. It rhymes with schmexism. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Shrexism. <laughs> I can't believe prejudice against Shrek dates back to 1986. We live in a swamp, they don't want you. <laughs> yeah, somebody once told me this world was going to rule me. They fucking rolled Supergirl, I'm going to tell you that. They sure did. Uh God. It's, it is wild. And not only that, but Barry Allen does after this, because of the specific writers that work at DC and who get the most leverage at DC, becomes like the backbone of literally all of existence. Yeah. And what happens to Supergirl? They tried to revive this character like dozens and dozens of times and failed. It's true. <laughs> Until like this year with Tom King and that's it. Like, that's it. Uh, she she did have a whole ass TV show that ran for many years, Gita. My corollary is, have you seen that shit? <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things to do with David is like just go. There's someone on super on on YouTube that is just collecting scenes of different like DC heroes as they appear in all of the like CW and WB shows. Yeah. So I love just going on that channel and just being like, I want to see all the clips of uh, Banshee. <laughs> Just out of context. And they are some of their comedy gold. They are incredible. They really work hard on that show. And I know why people like it. And I'm happy for all of them, especially for Calissa Flockhart, who's doing great. Yeah. But who's basically only in season one. Really. Yeah, that's true. It's too bad. Well, probably because she's a little expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's it is a show where they had about four dollars or at least that's what it looks like. A lot of Supergirl is uh, Melissa Benoist. Is that her name or is it Ben Wast? I don't know. M Mel B. Let's Mel call B. Her. Not the one from Spice Girls. <laughs> it's a lot of her walking up to the camera and bravely going, well, maybe this is just me, but I believe xenophobia is wrong. And then just people standing up and applauding her. It's like if Hillary Clinton was a superhero. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's it's very funny when you contrast it with shows like Black Lightning, which were running at the same time, which is basically doing the same thing, but a lot more thoughtfully. That's wild. At least for season one. Season one of Black Lightning is solid. I would recommend that to anybody. I'm probably going to watch that now. Yeah. So that brings us to the Blackboard, I believe. Not quite yet. I want to say Not one more thing. Not quite yet? Okay, I'll wait. One more thing. There's, um, there's one statement Donna Troy makes while talking to the droid that's telling her everything about DC history where it mentions that only one person remembers everything that happened before the crisis. Oh, yes. And just offhand, Donna says, no wonder Psycho Pirate went crazy. And Psycho Pirate is the one villain who kind of was hanging with Anti-Monitor, the big bad of Crisis on Infinite Earths the whole time. And for his trouble, got to remember this broken continuity that uh, nobody else remembers. 
and uh, was driven crazy by it. And that is a major storyline in Grant Morrison's Animal Man. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Grant Morrison was one of the first people that really wanted to dig into the like continuity failures of mm-hmm. crisis and actually expose them. Uh, I mean, I think that's why their crossover issue for invasion is the way that it is, because it's just like I want people to become aware of the editorial move that is occurring here. We are erasing things from existence. But these things really existed for these characters. Right. But we need to use the fiction itself to explain why this universe is so confusing. I want to tell a brief story about that psycho pirate issue where mm-hmm. he's kind of bringing back the dead ghosts of can- of canon's past, of continuity's past, where we see all of these super obscure characters uh, that – nobody remembers just being brought back into the world as ghosts and there's one character that looks like kind of like a lady who's dressed like adam strange riding a tyrannosaurus rex and there was this conversation going around on twitter at the time like who the hell is this lady uh so i went through literally every issue of strange adventures and mystery in space and all the likely places she could show up Just literally hundreds of comics trying to find this girl no one had identified before. Absolutely nothing. I ended up tracking down Chaz Truog, the artist on that issue. I found him on Facebook. I reached out to him and I asked him about this character. And he was like, oh, Grant Morrison just told me to create a bunch of random cool old Silver Agey crap. And I made this lady riding a dinosaur, which makes sense because after that, Chaz Truog would go on to do the official Jurassic Park comics. That so makes that's, the most sense. <laughs> so he's just a guy who likes drawing dinosaurs. <laughs> Listen, we all got to have something in our lives, yeah. right? For us, it's comic books. For him, it's dinosaurs. <laughs> right. Sometimes your thing is comic book dinosaurs, and that makes you Chaz. That's beautiful. There, mm-hmm. We could do a, a, a podcast all about the best comic book dinosaurs. <laughs> we absolutely could. Easily. It would be four hours long. <laughs> I have a lot to say about that T-Rex in the Batcave. I'm I sincerely want to hear it. I I love the Batman the Animated Series one where they just go through all the things in the Batcave and they're like, that's where that came from. Oh, I have a bone to pick with that. Oh boy. Some continuity problems. That episode is stolen valor from Penny Plunderer, the villain that actually is the origin of the pe- giant penny, giving wow. that story to Two-Face. Uh, Penny Plunder only did one thing in his whole career, and it's a giant penny, and they took that from him. They took that from him! Come on. (laughs) That's so funny. I'll always carry a torch for Penny Plunderer. That's one of my little weirdos. No, that's good. That's what made Grant Morrison Grant Morrison, (laughs) is holding on to weird grudges for many decades. (laughs) What you're learning here, if you want to be a creative person in an established universe, is to be as pedantic as possible and then force the rest of the continuity to bend around you. Dino, what was your favorite scene from this issue? My favorite scene, honestly, is the 52 speaker scene. Especially because it it serves no purpose other than to get people hype. I think comic books need this kind of these kinds of moments of mystery that the characters will never understand. It's also got incredible layout work. I I think the layouts here really enhance how the story is told. I love Grant Morrison, so I'm a fucking mark for this shit. But I love mysteries that are not explained, sometimes Mm -hmm. never explained. I think that's good. I don't think things need to be explained. This never will be. (laughs) I love the double page splash that 
knocks all the inset panels around like billiard balls, which is yes. something Morrison would play around with a lot more in the multiversity and certain tie-ins to Final Crisis. It reminds me a little bit of the psychic battle in Seven Soldiers of Victory with Satana yes. and uh, the the other the evil magician uh, with the the seven. It's the seven evil men of Murder Swamp or something like that. It's like a, it's whatever. It's Grant Morrison stuff. But there are a bunch of evil bald men that look exactly like Grant Morrison. And at a certain point, you see her look up and look at you. And then the panels kind of orient themselves as if they are three-dimensional objects that you can look down upon. And the, the things all move around. And it's like the elements of the comic book itself come alive. And he really works with these, Morrison really works with these artists that understand how to make the reader freak out. It's like the first time you play Metal Gear Solid 2 and you see fish and mailed. It's sort of like, what's this is wrong. This is a little yes. bit wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. You want to go to the blackboard? I do. And mine's really, really short and sweet, but it's Ellen and Maxine. I just, the idea of an entire, the thing on the blackboard I really want to evoke here is like the DC universe is supposed to be a real place. And that means that there are suburbs and normal people that go to school and children that that have parents who are superheroes. I'm not sure, I don't quite remember if Ellen and Maxine ever come back again in 52, but the fact that they are just alive and around and that people live normal lives is something that the DC universe does a very bad job of conceptualizing. Like just the sheer number of superheroes that exist, right? You throw a rock in certain places and you'll hit a, a meta gene person, you know, but here it's just cemented. Uh, there is suburbia. Your mundane existence also exists in this universe and it's just as special as anyone else's. I want to catch you up a little bit on what, Maxine and Ellen have been up to since 52. Oh, please. Would you like to hear it? I would love to. Uh, well, there was the incredible New 52 Animal Man series, the best yes. book of the New 52 by Jeff Lemire. One of the best talents in working in comic books right now. And this was, I think, his best book for DC Comics, I would I say. think so, too. I, uh, uh, where he tells a much more grounded story with Animal Man than Morrison was interested in telling, but one that really explores the family dynamic very richly. Mm-hmm. I think one which complements the Morrison run very well, telling a different, exploring a different dimension of that character, while also just like getting deep into the body horror of a guy who can mimic any animal. Yep. Uh, it, it's it's gross when you get into it, and the art by Travel Foreman really explores that. Uh, Maxine gets her own powers, similar to Buddy, kind of becoming the avatar of the red in the same way that Swamp Thing is the avatar of the green. And Buddy kind of has to protect her do- his daughter from falling into that same superhero life as he was because she's like a little girl. She's not ready for that. Yeah. And as we've seen in this comic book and also in Animal Man, he's been through some shit. Like- yeah. They end up losing a son. It's very traumatic. And currently, like in The Flash, they've moved to Central City and Maxine hangs out with Wally West's kids. They're best friends. See, I love that. That's yeah. like what I mean. Multiversity is also like the exploration of all these superhero progeny as as adults, and it does make me feel like this is a, a less cynical version of looking at like what what the boys does with the idea of superheroes existing in the real world. It's well, yeah, they some of them would be nepo babies, right? You know. <laughs> Yeah, so Maxine and Irie West are getting into all kinds of crazy trouble with each other and taking along Irie's brother with her. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very cute. 
so yeah, they're alive and doing pretty well is my report on that. Good. Another thing that I really like when other people return to Buddy Baker's family is that they don't kill them off. Like they, they see that it is so essential that Buddy- That he has a family. Buddy has to have a family. He has to be a family man. Some people just are. (laughs) Right. There was this whole narrative during the new 52 where Dan DiDio made this statement that superheroes shouldn't be married because it makes them static. And that's the reason that uh, Batwoman and Maggie Sawyer had to call off their engagement, which was a decision that made J.H. Williams quit the book. And they had to find a new creative team. It was the reason Aquaman and Mero weren't able to get together. And during that point, Animal Man Buddy loses his son, and it looks like he and Ellen are going to separate. And yeah, it's it's a really dire moment in DC history, and one we've thankfully moved on from, where people are allowed to be married and still be superheroes. Uh, the l- idea of legacy is so important to DC Comics, because we are inheritors of some of the most like it's some of the most impactful popular fiction, like superheroes, you know, like we can say that pretty definitively, right? Mm-hmm. You look at Superman and Batman, you throw it like you go outside and you talk to any child, that child will know who those characters are. Even before these big movies came out, they are just a part of our cultural imagination. But also what comes on with them is, you know, Superman has his super friends like Jimmy Olsen and his wife, Lois. Batman has a Robin. These things are like essential because they are about talking about being the inheritor of something that is so great that it's difficult to even understand and wrap your head around how influential it is. Like that has to exist. So like, of course they have to get married. Yeah. (laughs) It's been 80 years. Come on. Like let let Batman experience joy one or two times. Occasionally. Yeah. Now the question is, does he marry Catwoman? Does he marry Talia? Then things get kind of thorny. Listen, I am a dyed-in-the-wool bat cat shipper. I can't help it. I, I, I can't I, help I'm it. I'm a Talia guy. I'm sorry. We're going to have to be enemies. <sighs> well, I'll meet you with Don with pistols. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll all right. See. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm not really a Talia guy. My secret heart-of-heart Batmanship is Bruce Wayne and Herbie Dent. That I makes sense, that story actually. is so painful and so beautiful. No, that makes sense. I understand yeah. that. Villain shipping is also something I support wholeheartedly, so yeah. I can't – I, like, can't be mad at you for that. <laughs> Ah, they just care about each other so much. You might say that they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I I could say that, but I wouldn't give him Penny Plunderer's history. That has to remain separate. Uh, I can love Harvey and hate Two-Face, okay? Just like Batman. God, it's like would be such a fun relationship to explore also because haven't you like loved someone who has a side that you just hate? Like that's such exactly. a, like a, like a lifetime movie, yeah. you know, that's drama. We need that. That's the most interesting dynamic I think Batman has and it's one I'll always check in for. Time for me to go to the blackboard. I want to see what you're scribbling on there. Let's talk a little bit about the Ranthanagar War, shall we? Please tell me everything. I'm so curious. I'm not going to tell you everything because I would bore you to tears, but I'll tell you some things. Let's go back to the 1950s. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just the 50s. 70 years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the 50s are the time that DC gets more interested in telling these cosmic stories set in space because, you know, we're trying to get into space ourselves. We're sending out rockets and satellites and whatnot. And DC is kind of reinventing itself around these space age heroes. And whenever we have a cosmic story 
uh, we typically resort to one of three planets in the Silver Age. We talk about Krypton, which is blown up, so those stories have to take place in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about Thanagar, which is the planet that Hawkman is now from. He used to be this Egyptian prince, but then they decided, oh, he's actually an alien, which is something that wouldn't really be reconciled until 2018. And I could go on forever about how much I love the 2018 Hawkman series. But right now, Hawkman's just an alien from Ran. So is Hawkwoman uh, from Thanagar. And then Ran, which is where all the Adam Strange comics take place, who's kind of the guy holding down strange adventures and mysteries in space. He was a very, very popular Silver Age character who has kind of all but disappeared from the D landscape. So anytime you had a story set in space, usually you would have to go to Thanagar or Ran because those were really the only two fully explored planets outside of Earth that weren't dead worlds. Uh, so like in Cosmic Odyssey, which was Jim Starlin's big book trying to explain how the cosmic side of DC works. It's basically just, well, you got fourth world, you got Ranagar, you got, uh, no, you got fourth world, you got Thanagar, you got Ran, uh, end of list, I guess. There's Ranagar. Yeah. Well, can- Ranagar is actually the capital of the planet Ran. So technically, I did not make a mistake. I'm so mad about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. There's Thanagar and then Ranagar, which is on Ran. Yes. Fuck you. <laughs> so mad. Okay. So there's this Hawkman villain that Jeff Johns created during his run named Onimar Sin, uh, who he has this sect of Thanagarians who want to kind of expand the Thanagarian Empire. And in the name of that, they abduct the entire planet Ran and put it in their solar system so they could conquer it. Except this destabilizes the orbits of both planets, so it seems like one of them is going to crash into the sun. So both of them find that they have to fight each other for their right to exist. And like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, this calls in a bunch of cosmic allies. Uh, for instance, Blackfire, Starfire's sister, gets involved, which is how Starfire gets involved in this war. Uh, Adam Strange was involved to begin with because he's the Ran guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Animal Man gets involved because he's one of the heroes who Alan Scott rounds up to help go to space with him because he's got nothing better to do. What are you doing, Animal Man? You've been <laughs> sitting on your ass since Grant Morrison. <laughs> so true. He was just not busy. All right. Not since Grant Morrison. There were other writers, but okay. You know, since Vertigo. They did actually immediately after Grant Morrison make him eat meat. <laughs> yeah, they really did. They really did like immediately after. <laughs> it was. You'll be happy to know he's vegetarian now yeah good good yeah i mean there's no reason for him not to be (laughs) you know what's really interesting about teen titans apropos of nothing go ahead uh before the teen titans animated series raven was the vegetarian in the team and after the animated series beast boy is the vegetarian they just thought about it for a second yeah (laughs) they're like wait a second one of these guys can become animal Yeah, but Raven is an empath. She feels everything's feelings. She should also be a vegetarian. She probably should also be. They're just vegetarians together. And that dating comes easier for that reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this was one of the four tie-ins to Infinite Crisis to show what everybody was up to. This and the OMEC project, which we touched on in the previous week. And Villains United and the fourth one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, those tie-ins, they were not widely remembered, were they? <laughs> Day of Vengeance. Day of yeah. Vengeance, the one where Spectre goes crazy. Day of Vengeance, I remember that one, yes. Yes. Anyway, 
this one is the one where there's a bunch of heroes in space, so they don't have to get in the way of everything going down on Earth. And they try to, like, backpedal an explanation of why it ties in by explaining, oh, it's actually Superboy Prime who was pushed, ran into Thanagar's orbit. It wasn't Onomarsin after all. But it just feels like an attempt to kind of shoehorn that into the overall story. Uh, the whole thing was written by Dave Gibbons, the artist on Watchmen, who hmm. also collaborated with Alan Moore on a bunch of early Green Lantern stories in the 80s, such as Mogo Doesn't Socialize. Yeah, and the one where the planet becomes the, the Green Lantern, which is yeah. another great one. Great one. The fallout from the Ranthanagar War is that Zeta beams were going everywhere, which are the trademark of Ran, that they're these teleportation beams. And one of them hits the heroes, and that's why they come back all fucked up. And that's why in the whole chaos we lose Animal Man and Starfire and Adam Strange. And that's basically all you need to know about. Okay, great. It doesn't make any more sense to me than it did previously. But now at least I know that that isn't something that I need to personally reconcile. No. Let's go to our mailbag. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. You're full of great ideas. <sighs> I, I am just a font of wisdom today. We love I'm that. feeling full of it. And I need to expel it on somebody. It's me. I'm the recipient of all of your knowledge. I'm happy about it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go to asking the questions. You, the listener, can submit your own questions to this show uh, by writing into 52mailbag at gmail.com. That's the numeral five, the numeral two, the word mailbag at gmail.com. Our first question comes from Michael, who asks, The Jason Rush version of Firestorm was by far my favorite version of Firestorm. But he clearly hasn't gained much prominence. What made him less appealing than, say, Jaime Reyes's Blue Beetle? They were even introduced around the same time. Now, what do you know about Firestorm, Gita? Firestorm is, again, one of those heroes. I think that their origin is simply a little too complicated for me to, like, like click for me. Blue Beetle is simple, right? Right. Scarab, powers. There you go. <laughs> like, I get it. Firestorm, there's two guys, but there's one guy. Right. That's confusing for me. That's a lot of it. Firestorm is a Jerry Conway idea from the 70s, which was basically him trying to do an allegory for the escalation of nuclear tension across the world. It was a very Cold War era concept of this teenager and this scientist coming together and having to collaborate with each other and uh, deal with these powers that are similarly cropping up around the world. And Jason Rush was a reinvention of that for a... I guess Bush era society, uh, <laughs> where they take a lot of swings with him. Uh, he's a black hero for the first time, and uh, they put another person in his head, not Martin Stein, but a woman named Gehenna, mm -hmm. uh, who is a four year old girl who is aged up into a teenage love interest for Jason Rush, which I think is a big part of why he didn't catch on. Yeah, that's a very giving me very uh, Star Trek with the Janeway and the, the adult baby that everyone falls in love with, basically. Yeah, what you're saying about Firestorm is very true. A lot of a lot of attempts have been made to make Firestorm relevant in the modern age. Jeff Johns even took a swing in Doomsday Clock. But I don't think any of them have particularly resonated with anybody. Uh, there's also the fact that Jerry Conway himself is kind of the old man at DC right now, that he's still pretty involved. So, like, the original Ronnie Raymond is his baby. Uh, they tried to synthesize them both in the New 52 to make the duo ship Jason Rush and Ronnie, but uh, that 
series had some Ethan Van Skyver stink on it. Ooh, and yeah. there, there was a fallout with Gail Simone, and it just really did not survive that. Just bad vibes. Yeah. Bad, just a, bad vibes. Kind of a cursed character, Jason Rush. It's too bad because I do agree. Like, I, I like seeing these new takes on these new characters. And this character is, like, weird enough that I want to like him, you know? Or it's like the, the gimmick is so bizarre. I want it to work so badly. But every time I've tried to get into it, my brain just bounces right off of it. Yeah. Uh, the artist on the Jason Rush Firestorm series, Crisscross. It does some really phenomenal work. So I can see why you would like Jason Rush as a character because that art is just like some, some of the best stuff coming out from DC in the 2000s. He was very involved with, uh, Wildstorm uh, with, with, oh yeah. He was very involved with, uh, Milestone back in the 90s. He worked on Blood Syndicate and Icon and Hardware. So he's kind of taking that expert, that experience to the character of Firestorm, which is a cool idea. Um, visually a very interesting comic. So I understand why somebody would identify with him in that way. And we're going to meet Jason Rush a little bit in 52 later. So look forward to that. Uh, he's going to be in the Justice League for like a week. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, 52 was my first exposure to Firestorm as a concept. Yeah. And it made me want to like Firestorm like very genuinely. It is just, I think, there's too many steps mm -hmm. to that character and to the character's powers. I think it's a great character to use on, say, Legends of Tomorrow, where the whole point yes. is like weird, complicated characters. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think if they're going to revitalize this character, it should just lean into the weirdness. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't make sense in our current context. It's bizarre, but that's good. Our next question comes from Stella, who asks, I've been pondering this one for a bit. Who do you think has the best helmets in DC Comics? I feel like Marvel is a very helmets-focused organization, but DC is a real dearth of cool helmets. You have, like, Red Hood and Doctor Fate and the Hawk persons, I guess. I don't know. Your thoughts? I actually have a strong opinion about this. Number one best helmet in the DC Universe is Big Barda. That's oh, it. that's a good one, yes. And, you know, here's the actual, like, corollary between good helmets in DC and good helmets in Marvel – it's it's the fourth world, baby. That's where yeah. all the good helmets are. All those Jack Kirby designs. It's Jack Kirby knew how to draw a helmet. They got to have weird parts coming off. That's why he's the king. That's right. Big Barda, though, like Big Barda's character design is immaculate. Like it is just so good. That is peak character design for me forever. Lady Big, have helmet big staff. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> I want to shout out Black Manta's helmet. Oh, Black Manta also has a fucking sick-ass helmet. Yeah. Dude just hates Aquaman so much. It's so Darth I Vader. I love that that's his thing. It really, yes, it really is a Darth Vader, but under the sea. <laughs> yeah, and he was doing it years before Vader. It's great. It's great. I mean, you see again how comic books become just sort of this lingua franca for like all of pulp media across mediums where like everything kind of comes back to the power dynamics and the storytelling of comic books. I want to say I really love the transparent snow globe dome helmet on Mr. Freeze. That yes. really became de rigueur for the character after Batman the Animated Series. It is simply iconic. Yes. Uh, Dr. Fate, I will put my money behind one of the best costumes in comics. Yeah, that's also true. Be just everything everyone loves about Dr. Fate is just how clean that character looks. He's just so cool to draw. And, you know, I love Red Hood. Red Hood rules. 
Red like, Hood does have a good costume. Like, I don't understand how you wrote in to say, I don't see any cool helmets at DC. And then you name two of the coolest characters designs in comics. That's true. I mean, <laughs> it's just, they're so simple. Yeah. It's hard to get better than that. Yeah, exactly. You have to go ultra complicated fourth world bullshit nonsense in order to become better than that, you know? And even then... Jack Kirby had the range, and so many of these other artists just simply do not. <laughs> uh, Peacemaker's helmet looks terrible. It does. But that's the point now. The yes. fact that it looks so ugly has contributed so much to the character as of James Gunn. And just sticking that ridiculous chrome thing on his head has just informed so much of what we know about him. It's a bad helmet, but it's an appropriately bad helmet. If Gunn announced that he was going to have fire uh firestorm in a movie i would be like he'd probably get it right yeah he'd get it there's something about the way he leans into stupid weird corny stuff and is like it's good actually i'm gonna tell you though it wouldn't be jason rush no it absolutely wouldn't it it would absolutely be ronnie raymond and he would probably have like jerry conway cameo in the background or something yeah it would be like we are, we'll talk about James Gunn at length at a different time, but I have I can't wait. feelings about him. Yes, we, we will talk about James Gunn forever, but yeah. I think we do have to sign off. I do have one more question for you. What's the question you have? Are you ready? No, I'm not ready. I'm sorry. Can you give me like five more minutes? <laughs> Two Pickup is an Aftermath production created by Gita Jackson and Alex Jaffe and edited by Esper Quim with original music by John Ahrens. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the show's personalities and do not reflect those of DC Entertainment or Warner Brothers. Please rate and review our show wherever you can and send your questions and comments to 52mailbag at gmail.com. Never stop reading comics.